If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Richard Allen. He'll be answering our call on Sunday after church in 1830. Richard Allen started life as a slave with no last name. Before his 10th birthday, he was sold as a field hand. Before 20, he was sold again and then separated from his family. He felt trapped and saw no hope. Then a church opened up near his enslavement, and his owner made the unpopular decision to encourage attendance and allow him to be educated. After starting with nothing, that was all Richard needed to completely rewrite the history of his family and his people. He started businesses and used those funds to buy rental properties. Despite not being a citizen, he purchased a church and called it Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. I know, it's a mouthful, which is why everyone calls it Mother Bethel or AME. Throughout his life, he created a safe place for people of color to worship and learn so they could become wealthy business people like he was or do whatever else they wanted. The building that the AME currently worships in is the oldest parcel of real estate in the United States that has been continuously owned by African Americans. This conversation is with an extraordinary man who understands what it takes to overcome impossible odds and the importance of giving back once you have. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and everyone who has found themselves on the business end of George Washington's chimney, I give you Bishop Richard Allen. Hello, Bishop Allen. Is that you? Yes, it's me. Sir, I am thrilled to be speaking with you today. My name is Tony Dean, and I am talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting in pews next to each other in your church. And it also allows me to share a record of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today because your commitment to education, to rights, to freedom, it has literally changed our world. But before I do ask any of those questions, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? No, just assure me that this device has nothing to do with witchcraft and I'll be fine. I will absolutely assure that is the case. There is no witchcraft. This device has nothing to do with religion in any way. It's just an advanced piece of technology. Nothing to do with any of that. Wow, interesting, interesting. All right, well, let's let's proceed. Good. Well, you have accomplished so much, and you've helped so many, and the truth is it's hard to imagine that this was even possible considering what you started with. Because people, when they accomplish big things in life, they'll say, oh, I was broke and things were hard and all that. And then, you know, I went on to do a lot of things. But not only did you not have any money, but it's my understanding that you didn't even have your full name when you started. Is is that correct? Yes, I was actually born with the name Negro Richard. That's what I heard. And it is not a good thing to be known as Negro Richard. So one of the first things I did when I got my freedom was change my name to Richard Allen. And that's a little bit of an interesting story if you'd like to hear. Yes, please. My first owner was a 
gentleman by the name of Benjamin Chu, Chief Justice of Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and he had a friend by the name of William Allen, who had also served as Chief Justice. In fact, he also would serve as mayor of Philadelphia, and he was so rich, he started his own city. Do you ever hear of a place called Allentown? Now, you're it, rich it, when you start your own city. That was his city? Yes, Allentown. So after he died, I decided I think I'd like to be known as Richard Allen. That's how the name came about. Did you choose that name because you thought maybe you'd be rich one day? Well, I respected the things that he was able to accomplish, and I hoped that I could also do the same. You have to imagine that slavery is probably not going to go on forever. I mean, there are probably already issues with it right now. But you can imagine that probably doesn't go on forever, and maybe it even becomes illegal at some point. And to consider that the chief justice at that time owned you, there, there is a certain irony in that, assuming that it becomes illegal. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree with that. However, from what I can tell, the founding founders of this country walk very much in the footsteps of the English, of the British. And they, the British, made a lot of wealth from slavery. So in a sense, when the founding fathers came here, they had the same ideology. They knew that there was a lot of labor to be done in this country, and they thought that they would address this as the British did with slavery. So yes, and, and we're just considered to be property. And ironically, the idea of freedom with regards to England blinded them to the idea of creating a country where everyone could be free. Because we were really, as enslaved people, just considered to be property to be bought and sold at a whim. When you look back at that, I mean, from where you stand, it's absurd. But you can even imagine where I stand. And I'm just going to tell you, slavery is not illegal anymore. In fact, there's been a black president in our time. Like, the world wow. is totally... Yeah, I know. I knew you'd be surprised by that. Wow. And, and I know that me. sounds... I know that sounds impossible, but the thing is, had people like you not stepped up and said, look, we're people, we deserve rights, we would have never gotten there. But it is, it's such a thing to look at the Founding Fathers and them saying, we need our freedom while we are enslaving this people. It just makes no sense. You just have to assume that there was a percentage of them that thought, okay, this is crazy. This is what we have to do, but it's just crazy. I mean, they had to feel that way. Yeah, I would agree to that. And in addition to that, people change over time. Now, I had personal experience with a gentleman by the name of George Washington. George Washington comes to Pennsylvania. He bypasses the Pennsylvania laws, brings slaves with him. However, as his life progressed, you could see that his attitude towards race slavery and equality began to change. Would it surprise you to hear that when I solicited funds for African church, George Washington is among the contributors. In right. addition to that, when he died, 
1799, I delivered a eulogy for him in my church. And the reason was to acknowledge and to praise his decision to free his slaves upon his death and his wife's death. So people changed, and I knew a number of white people in Philadelphia that were even Ben Franklin, who was originally a slave owner, eventually becomes president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. So I saw a change, however, the amount of inertia to be overcome was a lot. And so, as you mentioned, slavery exists in my time. And I actually don't see an end of it in the horizon. I did see in 1808 how slavery, importation, and exportation was illegal. However, I didn't really see the same zeal end slavery altogether in the country. I didn't know all of this, that George Washington donated money towards your cause. That, that's amazing. And there was one question that I was going to ask you, and I think you just answered it. As I look at your life and the tolerance that you show people that later throughout the years would be seen as ignorant and backward thinking, when I look at this tolerance, I kind of wonder where does that come from? I mean, here you are, a young kid, you're a slave, treated like property, and then pieces of your family are sold apart. And here you are, despite all of that, being tolerant. And I wonder if that's what you're looking for. You're just waiting for that moment for people to change because you understand that they can. Well, that's my hope, that all people will come to the conclusion that all men are created equal. However... I have a responsibility as a Christian to be a light in the world, to be the salt of the earth, to stand up for what is right and have love in my heart for everyone, forgiveness in my heart for everyone, and acknowledge that there is a God. He had a son, Jesus Christ who died for our sins, and that those that have faith in him can depend on him in this life and in the life to come. We should all be so lucky to have somebody like you around us, that light around us. You had mentioned Ben Franklin, and you'd mentioned George Washington. Did you actually meet either of them? Yes. In fact, for a while, I worked as a chimney sweep at his residence at Sixth and Market. For George Washington or Ben Franklin? George Washington. George Washington lived at Sixth and Market. Oh. And because chimney fires are big issues here in the city, one of the ways I made money was to work as a chimney sweep, even though I am also a minister at St. George's Methodist Church for a time. Because they only gave you expenses. If you really want to make a living, you have to work. And that's a part of the work I did. And in addition to that, the enslaved people that George Washington had at his residence, you could see them from time to time walking around Philadelphia. And I got to meet 
the personal enslaved servant of Martha Washington, only judge. And in fact, I was among those African-Americans that assisted her escape from the president's house. Okay. All right. So, um, we got to unpack yeah. this for a second. This is a lot. All right. Okay. So first of all, so you're a chimney sweep in George Washington's house. Yes. I had a business. I did it as a as an individual, but then I expanded it to a business to be a chimney sweep to earn money. Okay. Now, when you say that you would see in Philadelphia, you would see George Washington slaves wandering around Philadelphia. Was that normal for a well, slave? Well, let me put it to let me put it to you this way. I'm referring primarily to only Judge. Okay. Martha Washington's personal enslaved servant. Because she would sometimes have free time, and she would sometimes have to come out of the president's house to run errands. And when she did that, she would meet other free Africans like myself, who had businesses, who made their own decisions. So I got to personally know her. And in fact, I had also started a shoemaking business. And there did come a time where Oni asked George Washington for some money for some shoes. And a lot of the Africans came to me to buy shoes. In fact, in my home, I had apprentices that I was helping to learn the trade as well. So, okay, back to Martha Washington and Oni Judge. You helped her escape Washington's place, is that correct? Yes, the free Africans, I'm going to say we had met with Oni because Oni contacted us because she's very concerned because Martha Washington has planned to give her away as a wedding present to her granddaughter in Virginia. And Ona didn't want anything to do with that because that granddaughter had a reputation of being harsh and cruel. And she approached us for help. And we began by just sort of gradually moving out some of the property that she had there. And when she did escape on a spring night in 1796, we hit her until she could get a ship that was headed north to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So we agreed to work together to help her to escape. Were there any consequences from Washington? Well, it's interesting you should say that because, of course, Martha Washington is insistent that George Washington place an ad in the newspaper that was being published by Brian Franklin at the time because they would have slave catcher ads in there. But George Washington doesn't want that because it's bad publicity, because there's many abolitionists here in Philadelphia. And they actually think that maybe somebody kidnapped her because in their minds, they had a hard time imagining that anybody would leave because she was being treated better than many of the slaves that were in this country. So George Washington does agree to get his nephew to go and find her. And the nephew found her and asked her, why did you run away? Did someone make you? And Oni said, no. I left because I wanted my freedom. Now, the nephew has to come back and 
tell George Washington this is not sitting well with him and Martha ultimately. And he does send out slave catchers to try and catch her. But the people in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, hid her. And eventually she was able to be free. What a story. I didn't know any of that. And so therein lies the beginning of the story of later in your life, you operated a station on the Underground Railroad for decades. Yes. One of the first things that we did was, of course, start a school. But in addition to that, we realized that we needed to do our part to help escaped slaves have freedom by housing them. And my house, it was not uncommon that there were maybe two or three runaways in my home that I hid. And in addition to that, we used the church as well. Did you ever have any run-ins with the law because of this? Not because of that. However, I did have run-ins with the law for another reason. Now, what happened with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, basically it removed Pennsylvania to be a place of safety for runaway enslaved people. And there were slave catchers. And then there were also these people called slave speculators. A slave speculator doesn't know for sure that you're an escaped slave, but they come to Philadelphia, they see all these free Africans walking around, and they say, you are an escaped slave. You look kind of slavey to me. But one of these slave speculators went down to the alderman's office swore out a false oath against me that said I was a recently escaped enslaved person. Wow. Well, the constable actually came to my home to arrest me. However, he's ashamed to look me in the eye because I'm a well-known figure in this city. So he doesn't arrest me. But he just tells me, go down to the alderman's office and straighten this out. And that's exactly what I did. However, I did discuss this matter with a white friend that I had by the name of Isaac Hopper. And he suggested and encouraged me to file a civil suit against the one who had taken out a false oath against me. And you know what? I went to court and I actually won an $800 judgment. And the slave catcher, the slave speculator, he doesn't have $800. So guess what happens to you? When you cannot pay your debts, you go to debtor's prison. And you know what? I let him stay there for about three months just to teach him a lesson before I drop the charge. It's about as passive-aggressive as you can possibly be. You know what I mean? Well, I just wanted to teach him a lesson because I wondered what would happen if he did this to another African in the city that maybe wasn't as well-known as I was. Gosh, that is incredible. I wanted to make sure he learned a hard lesson because debtor's prison is a horrible place. Why is that? Well, it's not a place where you're going to get good food. It's not a place where they're going to make you to be very comfortable. So I know that there were even some people in the city that were hurt by how horrible it was in debtor's prison. They were trying to make some reform. But, you know, a lot of people ended up in debtor's prison. Did you know that Robert Morris? You ever heard of Robert Morris? No. Who is he? Robert Morris was the superintendent of finances during the revolution, and he was extremely wealthy. 
Now, during the time of the revolution, he's helping to raise funds, and he's contributing a lot of his money, and he's getting his friends to contribute as well. And he actually guarantees his friends that they'll be paid back. But very unfortunately, the government is having a hard time paying back the loans they receive. And because of that, Robert Morris actually ends up in debtor's prison. I believe he was there for about three years. Even though he was one of the wealthiest men in this country, he had so many debts he couldn't pay, and he had made some bad investments. And also he was involved in slave trade as well that didn't work out. He just leverages himself too far. Jeez. So when you were talking about being a chimney sweep and you had your shoe store, it sounds like you are very industrious. Do you make a significant amount of money? Well, I can tell you this. I made enough money that most of the money that it took to buy the first site of Mother Bethel came out of my pocket. And I had a lot of difficulty with the Methodist organization here because I signed letters of incorporation in 1796, and they just wanted to dominate and control everything that happened in our church. So two-thirds of the church membership passed something called the African Supplement, when we said, no, we're going to retain ownership of the property and operations of our church. The Methodists didn't like that. And actually, we had no solid legal basis to change the letters of incorporation. So what they did was they put the building up for public auction in the year 1815. However, I had enough money to go and buy the church back off of auction. It cost me $10,125. I would take a fair amount of money. I had a home in the city, and I had a country home as well. When you're talking about buying property, it's my understanding that this is something that, that you preached regularly to your congregation, that for people to build wealth or just the general importance of owning property. Do you have some strong feelings about that then? Yes, extremely. Extremely. Yes, we're denied citizenship in this country. Yes, you're free, but you are not a citizen here. You have no voting rights. However, I believe we should do whatever it is that God helps us to do to prosper. And nothing stops us from working, saving the money, and doing business even owning real estate. Over the course of my life, I was able to purchase and own 10 properties. And it's actually my understanding that Bethel Church is the property that was the oldest to be owned by Africans in this country. So how many properties do you own right now? Is it the church and others or just the church? It's the church my two homes, and other rental properties. Now, I did have other businesses like dry goods. I had some dry goods stores. But as the years went on, I started to focus more just on property, getting income from property, from rental. That's magnificent. I mean, it's so it's just hard to even imagine. You can't vote. You don't have citizenship, and yet here you go, starting all these businesses and owning property. It's no wonder that you've been successful. So 
Let's go back a little bit. The first question that I asked you, I had said that you've accomplished so much, and I think we've drawn a decent picture financially of how much you've accomplished. But let's talk about life as a slave. So you start out as Negro Richard, and yes. you are a slave at seven years old. Is that right? Well, that I'm born a slave. I'm born a slave. The first owner is Benjamin Shoes. When I'm seven years old, he sold my whole family to a plantation owner in Delaware by the name of Stokely Sturgis. Stokely Sturgis was not a cruel man. He tried to be like, we are his children, he is our father. However, by the time I'm a teenager, I'm extremely depressed because I realize that I have no future. I'm going to work from sunup to sundown. Somebody else is going to get the benefits. But it's right around that time that some Methodists who were anti-slavery and were looking to see what they did to help to spread the gospel to Africans and also educate Africans started a church and a school close to where I was enslaved. And I began to go to those church services and to the school as well. Now, going to church, this is where I started to hear the gospel message that helped me to have a different perspective on the life that I was living. Rather than to just see myself as a slave with no future. I began, because of the gospel preaching, to see myself as a child of God, and that I needed to live my life to please God and to accept Christ as my Savior, and that I was taught that Christ came to set the captives free. And Christ encouraged everyone who was feeling oppressed and heavy laden from the things of this world that they should come to him and he would give them peace and he would give them rest. And the message that I heard, that I accepted with my whole heart, that I should seek the kingdom of God, which was a greater kingdom than the kingdom of this world, and that I should seek the righteousness, the right living that Christ offers through his death and his resurrection. And that if I focused my attention on those things, my life would be totally changed. And in fact, from the time that I accepted that message, I had a whole new perspective on life. I no longer saw myself as someone who was trapped in the kingdoms of this world but that I was a child of God that was accepted in the kingdom of God. And my life bears witness that the faith that I had in that came to pass because I was able to get my freedom and I was able to be a preacher and I was able to eventually become a bishop of an African church denomination. Did this all come at one time? Did you hear a sermon that made you feel all of this, that you were a child of God? Was yes. it several moments that build on one another? What did that look like? I would call it as hearing that message and sort of accepting it 
but not deep in my heart. I felt that I actually was a wicked person. I lied. I did a lot of wrong things as a slave. And I accepted it, but at some point I doubted that it was real. Until one night, out of desperation, I fell down on my knees and I cried out to him with all my heart. And immediately I felt freedom like I had never had before. I felt so free that I started holding prayer meetings in my owner's kitchen. And my owner, who was not a believer, became a believer. Stokely Sturgis? Yes. Yes, he was not a believer. In fact, I suggested to him that he should invite preachers to come to the plantation so that he could hear directly from those preachers the gospel message. And he agreed. And I found a preacher who came to him. Now, that particular preacher had been a former slave owner, but now he realized it was evil. He freed his slaves, and his ministry was actually to go to plantation owners and to confront them that they needed to free their slaves. And that's exactly what happened. He came, and he confronted my owner, and he eventually agreed to find a way for me to get my freedom. Which was what? He allowed me to execute an agreement with him when I was 20 years old. And the agreement was that over the course of five years, I should give him $400 a year. And this was a legal document that was prepared. However, I was able to do that in three and a half years because I did whatever extra work I could find so that I could buy my freedom. And so as a slave, you worked extra, found a way to make extra money, and then paid your owner, Stokely Sturgis, $2,000, and that's how you got your freedom. That's exactly right. I found work as a woodcutter, a bricklayer, I even, for a time, delivered salt for the Patriot Army from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, to Valley Forge. To Valley Forge. Wow. I think that uh, the people that will hear uh, what we're talking about right now, if they were to go and search how much $2,000 would be in our time, I think they would be absolutely stunned at how much money that is in your time. Because I mean, in your time, what, what could you buy for $2,000? Could you buy a house for $2,000? As I mentioned, I bought a whole church property for 10000 So if you're talking about a smaller home, yes, maybe you can do that for $2,000. Now, the price for me was higher because I had education. If you are a slave with education, you are worth a lot more than a slave that does not have education. For others who don't have education, maybe the price for their freedom would be half or even less than that. I, I want to talk about your education, but I there's a couple things I want to go back on for a minute. Stokely, Stokely Sturgis, I love this guy's name. Stokely Sturgis, is it normal for an owner of slaves in your time 
to encourage their people to go to church and to get educated? Because that hasn't been my experience so far. Absolutely not. That's where I believe that God had a hand in this somehow, because it is really extremely unusual for a slave owner to want their slave to be taught the scriptures and to be taught to read and write. In fact, let me tell you this, Stokely Sturge's neighbors began laughing at him and warning him, wow, look at what you're doing. You're going to let your slaves go to church and let them get education? They will absolutely ruin your business. And I can tell you, we knew that this was happening. There were actually times when we were supposed to go to church or we were supposed to go to school, we didn't go. In fact, he would come to us and say, hey, you're supposed to be in church. You're supposed to be in uh, school. And we would tell him, no, we are not going because our work progress is not what it should be to keep us from being behind in our work. So there were times where we would work all night just to make sure no one could point a finger at education or getting faith to be a bad thing. Oh, I see. So what you're, okay. I was trying to keep up with you there. So what you, I think what you're saying is you would work extra hard to make sure that the work was done so that you could prove to anybody that would maybe hassle him or maybe would want to create problems for you that just because they're going to church doesn't mean the rest of the work gets done. In fact, what happened was our work was better. In other words, not only did we do what we were supposed to do, we looked and saw what needed to be done before he would even tell us to do it. And he would brag about that to his neighbor. Jeez. It's hard to give anybody a free pass when they're owning slaves because it's just not right. But right. I, it does appear that this was a decent man and probably yeah. was very conflicted with slavery altogether, I'm guessing. Well, to some extent, because the reality is he actually sold my mother and three siblings that were born on that plantation. Yeah, what's up with that? I mean, when you were talking a minute ago about how you were saying that you were a wicked man, let me tell you what, if my family was getting sold and we were getting split up, and especially at that age, I mean, I, I think this happened when you were 17. If I'm getting split up from these people that I'm caring about, especially your mom, how did you deal with that? What did that look like? This, is, again, is where the faith and teachings of Christ come in. Christ said, you've got to forgive those that do wrong against you. Christ said that if there are people cursing you, you ought to bless them and you ought to pray for them. So because I wanted to be a genuine follower of Christ, even though he did those things, I forgave him and I prayed for him. And I really helped him to become a believer as well. What a turn of events. We were talking at the beginning about people changing. This is a person that owns you, 
that becomes inspired by you and then changes to become a, a version of, of the life that you're living. He wanted to do what you were doing. And so was he really involved with the church then once he became a Methodist? He became much more involved and he was cut to the heart by the truth of God's word because that preacher confronted him and said, basically, you're a wicked man because you dare to own another person that God has intended to be free. Was that preacher white or black? He was a white man. And there were several in Delaware that were doing the same thing. They were traveling around to the plantations and they were confronting slave owners. What you are doing is evil because you have no right to take away the freedom of another person. I wonder if that's the way to end slavery. I wonder if, if that's what has to happen, because I think people are looking for somebody to step up and make a grand gesture and say, okay, you know, it's just slavery is abolished. But then if that would happen, the, the country would fall into, into peril because now there's no workers. I mean, it's a big mess. And you've got a bunch of people that aren't educated that probably aren't sure what they're supposed to do next as well. And so it's not the easiest thing to just say that it's done. But if somebody were to go from owner to owner and look at this from a, a biblical sense and say, hey, look, let's, let's examine what's going on in here, I wonder if that's the way the change has to take place. Well, I did my part to communicate with the whites in Philadelphia. I published pamphlets. I cannot preach to everyone. However, printing pamphlets and circulating them was a way to get the message out there concerning slavery. And in a pamphlet that I wrote, I said to them, I want to warn you that the God of the Bible hates slavery. As an example, I reminded them what God did to the Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites. Through much plagues and death and bloodshed, he freed his people. And I wanted to make it clear to everyone, God is not a respecter of person. If he hated slavery back then, he hates it still today. And I warn them, if you love your country, if you love the God of love, free your hands from slaves. Burden not your country or your children with them. Because when God was ready to end slavery in this country, oh, he was going to end it. And we might not like the way he did it. Maybe God isn't capable of the same change as you hope people are. Maybe God's a little bit more consistent. Absolutely. God doesn't change. What he liked yesterday, he likes today. What he didn't like yesterday, he still don't like it today. The God of the and Bible I, then is the God of the Bible now. That's right. He doesn't change. And very unfortunately, what I saw 
in the churches was that, yes, they could agree that you could be free, but they couldn't agree that you are equal human beings. And that is really what drove the whole inertia to, to just start our own churches because so many whites were believing that their white skins made them more favorable in God's sight. The Bible clearly addresses slavery as being wrong. You, you've just stated that perfectly. Does the Bible address equality in men? Yes, it does, because there are a couple of scriptures that go along that. The Bible says that from one blood, he made all nations. You have Adam, you have Eve. And from them came all the variety of races that we see today, and they are all equal in God's sight. And in addition to that, I'm reminded of what Peter said, you see, because in the beginning, there were Israelites that said, no, these Gentiles, they're like dogs. You can't really mix with them. But God showed Peter very early on that he must not call any kind of person common or unclean, that in every nation of this world, those that come to God and they acknowledge God, and they serve God, are accepted by God, regardless of their color. Very tricky reading the Bible, because if you don't read it all, you just catch a piece of it. I think you miss mm. a lot of the message sometimes. Oh, yes. I, that is why, that's why something like a slave Bible is so horrible. You've heard of slave Bibles? I have, but for somebody that might be listening to this for the first time, explain what the slave Bible is. The slave Bible the slave it just blows my mind. Like, I want to get my hands on a slave Bible just to see it, because I can't even believe it exists. But please explain that. A slave Bible was designed to communicate to Africans the parts of the Bible that would make them good servants and just forget about the idea of being free. So there would be sections, whole sections, like, for example, the story of the exodus from Egypt. It's not in the slave Bible because they don't want you. They didn't want the slaves to think that God would rescue people from slavery. And they would retain in the scriptures the parts of the scriptures that say that if you are a servant, you should be obedient to your master. So they would keep those parts, but not include the parts that clearly make it that people are not to enslave others. Bishop Allen, can you even imagine a bunch of white guys, a bunch of white plantation owners sitting around, they're smoking cigars and, and drinking whiskey, and they're working on slave bible they're just kind of going through it line by line and they're like see and they get to treat others as you want to be treated yourself that's not going to work they scratch that right. out and then they go, right. they go to the next thing like what you just said like oh god definitely leave that in that is so absurd yeah yeah it, you really the bible when you read the bible has to teach you the bible 
has to instruct you and show you the truth. You don't go into the Bible with a preconceived idea and then see can you find a verse here and a verse there that are going to support what you thought even before you looked at the Bible. And of course, people like Thomas Jefferson, he wrote his own Bible. There is something called the Jefferson Bible. And he believed, he didn't believe in any kind of miracles or any kind of supernatural things. So what he actually did was go through the Bible and take out anything supernatural. And he actually gave it to Congress to read. So yeah, you can deceive yourself. Oh, for sure. I can't even, I, I didn't even, I didn't know this either. It was, so was that uh, Bible, was it pro-slavery? Yes. Yeah, because it, when you take out the power of God from God, you get the idea that man is in control. Man can decide to do this, and man can decide to do that, and that man has authority on this earth and not God. So by editing the Bible in that way, he really was not acknowledging the authority of God, the authority of Christ in this world. I understand that you have never written your own Bible, thank God, and never will, I'm sure, but you have done quite a bit of writing as you were talking about your pamphlets. And I don't really know the story of this, but I heard something about a story of something you wrote about a murder of a white store owner or something. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? And if so, can you tell me a little oh, bit about yeah. Yes, there were two black gentlemen, John Joyce and Peter Mathias, who murdered a white widow by the name of Sarah Cross, who was about 50 years old. And when this happened, it was big news. Those men were quickly caught. They were taken to trial, and they were sentenced to death. And this was big news in Philadelphia because there were a lot of whites who said, you know what? This proves that Africans don't deserve to be free, and they should be kept to be enslaved because you can see there's something inherently evil about them, that they would do this horrible crime. Now, this is John Joyce and Peter Mathias. They're both black, and they murder the white woman. Yes. And this is yes. proof, of course, because white men haven't murdered anybody throughout the years. Well, this is the point. That, that this is what motivated me, number one, to go and visit those men who had been condemned to death, get them to confess their crimes, and in addition to them, get them to accept Christ as Savior and just plead for mercy, because they were already going to be executed, but at least maybe they could avoid the second death, going to eternal hell fire. So I went and got those confessions and addressed this pamphlet to the public and to the African community. To the public, I wanted to make sure it was clear this was not a race crime. What it was was a crime of moral failure because neither of those men had accepted Christ as their savior. Both of those men had the ability to work, but they decided they wanted more money, and they had given themselves to drunkenness and prostitution 
and those kinds of things. And the argument that I made was that when you start sinning, it takes you on a downward spiral. And it, it can take you all the way down to committing murder. But I emphasize to them that drunkenness is a problem in the white community. Murder is a problem in the white community. So it shouldn't be looked at as a race crime. It was a crime that comes from man's fallen nature and sinfulness. You have two men here that, that are wicked, and yeah. they just did not navigate the challenges of living well. They didn't have that moment that you had where you fell to your knees and said, I get it. I need to start living right. differently. And if, right. if these men had spent more time in church or had been properly educated or any of those things, they could have had that, that moment where they made a, a drastic turn to the right very easily. That's right. That's why I was glad in 1809 African ministers in this city united and formed an organization called the Society for the Suppression of Vice and Immorality. You see, because it's not good enough for us African members to sit in the church and wait for them to come in. We have to go out into the community and meet those people right where they are and share with them the gospel, share with them the ways to have a happy, successful life. We had to go out and do that. And you see the same kinds of initiatives were happening in the white community as well. I was not the only minister to go and visit those men and to pray with them and to sing songs with them. There were white ministers that went as well. And when those two men had their final walk, to the gallows. I was in the company of about three or four other ministers, and many of them were white, and we sang songs with them. And they seemed to be at peace, knowing that they had to pay for the consequence of their evil deeds. These men, you had mentioned that they were, they had problems drinking, and they had issues with money, and they certainly had developed moral issues. And I look at you now living this exact opposite life, being very responsible and, and hardworking to make lots of money. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, does God want people to be rich? I don't know that God wants people to be rich. God wants us to get what we need that he would provide, and he would show us a way that we could provide for our needs. He was very clear, don't steal. He was very clear, don't kill. He was very clear, do not covet what other people have. But as I said before, what we should do is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, his right way of living by faith in Christ. And then he adds, and he provides for you as he sees fit. And it isn't for everybody to be rich because some people, when you make them rich, you destroy them because then they fall in love with the money and they forget about God. 
So no, everybody doesn't need to be rich, but we all have needs that need to be met, but we ought to do them in the way that God says. It's difficult to be a moral person if, if you don't have the bare minimums, food, shelter, a lot of things that only money can buy. That makes sense. That's for sure. That's for sure. However, this again is where faith and a relationship with God comes in. Because there's a scripture that says, I was young and now I'm old, but I never saw the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. We can trust God through a relationship with him to provide for what we need. And we don't have to fall into the trap of stealing, of murdering, of doing things to get what we need that ultimately hurt us and the society that we live in. It appears that there are a lot of preachers that will go into the community and encourage the reading of the Bible and encourage studying the Word. And it seems that your approach is more hands-on. Like, maybe we read for about five minutes, and then we spend the other 55 minutes in the hour going out, talking to people, doing things, taking action, instead of thinking about it. Am I on the right path there? Absolutely. And I can tell you, when I first became a believer, I spent all of my free time reading the Word of God, praying, seeking God, listening for his direction in my life. You see, because you say you are a Christian, that doesn't make you a Christian. Because a Christian puts Christ and the Word of God as the first place in their life. Everything else is secondary. And I believe that if people wholeheartedly come to the faith and by their faith they do things that please God, this is the path that we need to follow. What could Richard Allen not do? I mean, he owns businesses, he invests in real estate, he travels the streets preaching in his spare time, and even saves money to buy his own freedom while he is a slave. In the next episode, he talks about gathering a group to vote on the possibility of all Africans leaving the United States. And he'll tell the absurd story of founding father Dr. Benjamin Rush recruiting him to help people dying of yellow fever because black people can't catch it. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of Richard Allen. 